0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Theory.
0: Welcome to High Theory.
1: In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams.
0: And I'm Sharonik Burshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we are with Devashri Mukherjee talking about Bombay talkies. Devashri, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi Sharanik, um, I'm Debushree. I teach film and media at Columbia University. And uh, I've been working on film and media history for more than a decade now. I'm starting with my dissertation and then converting that into a monograph on a history of Bombay cinema starting in the 1930s. So history of the talkies, and the turn from silent to talkie cinema with a very specific focus on questions of labor and material practice. So that was pretty much the broad ambit of my book, Bombay Hustle. And today we're talking about a brand new photo anthology that I've edited, which is called Bombay Talkies, An Unseen History of Indian Cinema, which actually presents this very fantastic and unprecedented visual archive. That also helps, I think many of us answer some of those very difficult questions about practice and labor in 1930s Indian cinemas.
0: And let me ask you my very first question, which is what the heck is Bombay (laughs) Talkies?
1: Okay, so Bombay Talkies uh, was a film studio that was set up in 1934 in the suburb of Malad in Bombay City. And it was set up by a very motley group of multilingual, multiracial, and globe trotting actors and technicians.
0: Just for our listeners who might not be familiar, Bombay is the older name of the city that is now Mumbai, which the name changed in 1995.
1: Yeah, so in the 1930s, this is a city that's part of British India part of Bombay presidency, it's still called Bombay, and Bombay Talkies is quite an appropriate name for a film studio that's being set up at the cusp of the transition to talkie or sound film, and that's being located in Bombay, so quite a no-brainer there. Right. And its main founders were this very interesting couple, Himanshu Rai and Devika Rani Choudhury. Himanshu Rai is this lawyer who goes to England to study law, but very quickly decides to become an actor in the theatre and then becomes a film producer and entrepreneur. And Devika Rani similarly meets up with him in Europe where she's studying... There are different accounts. She's studying textile design and she has a short stint in studying acting. But she becomes, once she collaborates with Himanshu, a very, very prominent actress of Indian cinema, right. while also being a set designer and a film studio boss. Right. What the heck is Bombay Talkies? It's still remembered today as a very legendary studio. Right. And legendary for some of its films that count as classics of early Indian cinema, like Achut Kanya or Mahal, for introducing some of the best-loved actors of Indian cinema, be it Devika Rani and Leela Chitness or Ashok Kumar and Dilip Kumar. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also really significant and remembered in some ways for leaving a very huge footprint on the industrial and the aesthetic futures of Bombay cinema.
0: Right,
1: And this is because it trained some of the camera technicians, music composers, set builders, who went on to have long careers over many, many decades after Bombay Talkies even shut down. So I think we can trace even the basic aesthetic template of mainstream Bombay cinema, such as five simple catchy song numbers to what Bombay Talkies kind of instituted. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, more complex aesthetic legacies, such as German expressionist lighting designs. Right. that you see in the 1950s films of Raj Kapoor and Guru Dutt.
0: So while we are still in kind of definitional territory, can I ask you, for our listeners and for me, when Bombay Cinema became Bollywood and what are the differences that you would mark?
1: So this is a very vexed debate, right? There is no simple, straightforward answer to this. I tell, for example, my undergraduate students, right, who are interested in Indian cinema as Bollywood, and there's no historical kind of differentiation for them, that in a sense, Bollywood is this term, it's like a meme that has gone viral, and there's no coming back from it. So I am not very strictly disciplining any kind of uses of Bollywood as as a term by those who choose to apply it everywhere and for all things Indian cinema. But it has its limitations when one wants to think a little bit more seriously or rigorously about the many kinds of cinemas produced in the subcontinent, right? Right. So, for example, I say Bombay cinema to talk about popular studio produced films made in the city of Bombay because Indian cinema doesn't really make sense for a pre-independence pre-partition South Asian filmmaking scene right so there's yeah. films being made in Lahore will we call that early Indian cinema right yeah that's national kind of cinema debate doesn't hold for defining films made in the period I'm talking about. But I think the turn to Bollywood is most easily understood as a turn that can be located specifically in the 1990s with the liberalization of the Indian economy, because it allows many different kinds of actors to enter the film scene, including corporate entities certain amounts of different kinds of bank finance and a kind of larger economy a big kind of assemblage that exceeds simply a film product and extends into the branding of stars their kind of stage shows and concerts merchandising the emergence of the multiplex Hmm. and bollywood also has a very direct 1990s address to a broader diaspora so there's many things that are happening with this 1990s turn. I definitely still use Bollywood to talk about big budget, multi star films with a very canny diasporic address and with a lot of branding and merchandising that is attached to it that exceeds simply the film that you watch on a screen.
0: Right. Okay. Let me move on to my next question. How do you use or how do we use Bombay Doggies?
1: Okay, so the premise, I guess, of our conversation is this book, Bombay Talkies, An Unseen History of Indian Cinema. And so if we had to use Bombay Talkies via this book, for me, it would mean how to make sense of this unprecedented archive of photographs that all pertain to the film studio called Bombay Talkies. As a visual archive, it gives us some very interesting entry points into a kind of visual mode of historiography. And I mean historiography, not just of cinema, but of the urban, of colonial modernity, right? various other things that South Asian scholars are interested in. The collection of photographs really foregrounds the work of filmmaking, because the majority of the images are of production that is their BTS shops, behind-the-scenes stills, right. or what in, say, theatrical language one would call backstage images. Right. And this in itself is rather huge, because one of the tragedies of Indian film history is that the official archive of cinematic memory is quite patchy and quite fragile.
0: Yeah.
1: So while India started producing films literally in droves by the 1920s, of all films that were made up until 1947 are considered by experts as lost.
0: Right.
1: And what this means is that no one expects that we will ever see these films again. So we are working with 5% of the complete output of these decades. So it's a very fragmented archive many of the primary sources that scholars that work on Hollywood, for example, take for granted,
0: Mm. we have
1: accepted as lost forever. And not only the films are missing, right? But we also have very limited access to paratextual materials, studio papers, contracts, screenplays, and so on. So the Washing Photo Archive are production stills, and they're absolutely unprecedented for the 1930s. So, one way to use these images and this archive is because of the glimpses that these photographs give us into questions of technical expertise, creative practices, the kinds of technology being used, and even aesthetic emergence, by which I mean with talking about a film form and a film industry that is on the cusp of consolidating itself, emerging from silent to talky. What language will these films be in? How much song and dance to be used? This is a unique kind of a template for Indian cinemas. We don't see that musical form survive beyond the 30s anywhere else in the world, but it really is the mainstay of popular Indian cinema till today.
0: Yeah. We kind of take it for granted, but it didn't have to be this this way.
1: It didn't have to be this way. And we can't even call this template a musical in the Hollywood sense, right? right. The Hollywood musicals are very much about foregrounding some kind of performative plot, right? Yeah. The Actors yeah. and actresses are, are, are Broadway stars. But here, song and dance is used as just another kind of axis of storytelling or yeah. expressing emotions. So where did all of this come from, right? And then you get into thinking about what are the industrial, technical, creative contexts from which this form emerges. And for me, very exciting about these photographs is that you also get a glimpse into social relations on a film set. By social relations, I mean, you understand a little bit about the various kind of tiers and hierarchies of work and labor Mm. on a set and so on. And One of the questions that I was very interested in when I went into researching my first book, Bombay Hustle, was how to construct a story of what we call below-the-line labor in early Indian cinema. So in Hollywood, when they're building budgets a line is drawn when you are talking about salaries of different personnel between the executive personnel and everyone below a certain line. And so that below-the-line labor includes all those technicians, background actors, background dancers, the light boys, set boys, production assistants that never really are visible in any official record or document or interview about Bollywood. So, how to kind of get at their histories, those stories, and you can imagine what a huge historiographic challenge that is. Yes,
0: absolutely. Given
1: how fragmented this archive is. So, these photographs actually give us one entry point into thinking about film as labor and thinking about this very differentiated terrain of work and practice. And I think from there, one also realizes something that anyone that's ever made a film intuitively understands which is that filmmaking is a fundamentally collaborative process yeah right that there are multiple people that are required for any one creative decision to be executed on a set and that this kind of collaboration often extends beyond even the human so there's many non human actants that are yeah. very critical to what a film will ultimately look like and that would include landscape that would include climate, right. that would include just various other kinds of actors. And I think having a visual access to some of these histories really um, helps us think about these questions that are becoming very interesting and pertinent across the humanities and social sciences today, right? right. So yeah. that's definitely one of the ways we can use Bombay talkies, right, a visual route into a very exciting moment of industrial, technological, technical, and creative efflorescence located in Bombay City.
0: Let me ask you my final question, which is how will Bombay talkies save the world?
1: (laughs) I love that question. (laughs) Um, I mean, obviously, one would say that Bombay talkies cannot save the world. (laughs) But on the other hand, Bombay talkies can save the world if we believe that somewhere, somehow, cinema can save the world. Right. And I was thinking about this question and how hard it is to imagine, right, in, that in India today, cinema can save the world. Given yeah. this very gigantic and largely voluntary term that mainstream filmmakers have taken towards making outrageous right-wing propaganda.
0: Yeah,
1: But again, from that point of view, I think when you think about a studio like Bombay Talkies that was set up by a group of men and women who are pretty much fleeing Nazi Germany in the early 30s, yeah. and also then trying to make sense of what decolonization in India can look like, right? Thinking about an imminent kind of a possibility of political independence,
0: right.
1: then definitely Bombay Talkies has some very really useful insights for us today. And the kinds of films that they ended up making, right? So these are films that are meant to turn out a profit, right? This is not some social justice documentary filmmaking. But nonetheless, the overall kind of ethical vision, I think, of Bombay Talkies in these early years is definitely inspiring for us today because they are interested in questions of social reform, social justice, the main protagonists and the character and plot conflicts are all premised on questions of of minoritization and marginalization. So these are romance films, right? They all hinge around the sphere of love and marriage. But the simple question of romantic choice becomes a very, very generative side to raise questions about caste, class, religion and so on. And I think that anyone that's following politics in India today knows that it is in these very intimate spheres of love, sex, marriage, food, that the most violent kind of social purges are taking place today. So I think it's very important to remember that even if we don't agree with a kind of Congress style reformist vision that these films were espousing, they are nonetheless offering an ethical vision. That was the antithesis to a kind of fascist hankering for racial purity, autochthonous identity, or a hierarchy of human being. Again, I don't want to make it sound like Bombay talkies is the answer to everything, It's also a very overrepresented studio because it was helmed by upper-caste elite Bengalis and had huge amounts of social and cultural capital drawing on bankers and politicians and lawyers in Bombay City. And its films exist, they are extant. So in many ways, it's highly overrepresented. It doesn't stand in and cannot stand in for the diversity of film work that's happening in 1930s from Bombay and elsewhere. But it still has a lot to offer us in terms of lessons that one can glean from the past.
0: Yes. And, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm so excited to get my hands on the book. Doshi, thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us.
1: Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And thank you for listening to High Theory.
0: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fixed.
1: Owen Quinn
0: composes our theme music, Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio, and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.